Welcome to International Tax Bites, designing the perfect international taxation system. This is a short series of episodes which focus on the design and functioning of the international tax system, each featuring a guest who has expertise in the international taxation arena. We hope you enjoy it. So, here we are again for uh, another episode of our mini-series, Designing the Perfect International Tax System. And just for those who are listening, Harriet's having some difficulties with her connection right now. Uh, so I'm going to do the introduction. And today we have a, a guest with us, a returning guest, uh, Peter Deitch, who appeared in one of our earlier episodes around where we discussed his book, Catching Capital, and uh, the developments in international taxation at the moment. He is a professor with the Department of Philosophy at the University of Victoria. He has a PhD from the LSE. He specializes in the philosophy of tax and has written a number of books on the topic, including my particular favorite uh, and a book which every tax practitioner, I think, uh, who takes the topic seriously should read, which is called Catching Capital. It's an excellent, excellent book, and it's stood the test of the last eight years. It's still relevant, and I think um, it certainly changes the way that practitioners think about things when they when they read tax about tax from a different perspective. And... Um, Today, we're going to talk about the prospects of an international tax court, which is mentioned in Catching Capital, isn't it, uh, Peter? That's one yes, of it your... is, Graham. And, and thanks for thanks so much for having me back. Uh, I take it as a compliment to be invited back, because the first time you invite someone, you might say, oh, that didn't go so well, we'll leave it at that. But here I am, and I'm, I'm happy to be here uh, to talk about the uh, the proposal of a, of a tax court in the context of, uh, of tax justice more broadly. Yeah, so tax justice is 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 the philosophical basis that you approach this from, right? And yes, do you want to exactly. just tell so, us what tax justice means in your sense? Okay, and then an hour and a half later, we'll get to the question yeah. of, a, <laughs> of a tax court. An so hour and a half. <laughs> so um, the, the the basic, I mean, you can you can approach tax justice from two angles, and I think it's important to. Um, identify this ambiguity right off the bat. So one approach when we think about tax is to think about tax as an instrument to realize our conception of justice. Right? Um, so this is part of what a tax does within a state. Uh, we have a certain ideal of justice, what we think uh, inequalities, uh, returns to people uh, should, should look like, and then we use the tax system to pursue that ideal to some extent. Now we could do that globally too. right? Um, so that's one, and what what together with Thomas Rickson, I call a broader conception of tax justice. Uh, but then the, the whole discussion around tax justice kind of gets swallowed up in the bigger discussion of justice. So a more narrow conception is the following, and that is wh when we have a an international tax base that arises because individuals are, uh, you know, they, they, they have different activities in different countries, corporations even more so, uh, so there's an international tax base. The question is, well, who's got the right to tax parts of which parts of that tax base? So here's a distributive question. How do we allocate the right to tax the tax base? And that's a more narrow understanding of tax justice. Uh, and that's the one I think that um, a lot of the literature these days uh, uh, addresses. Right? Yeah. So so what you're saying is that Tax is not first, the first starting point. Is tax is not just a way to raise money to pay bills, that it can have a redistributive effect as well. 
Uh, well, yes. So the the redistributive effect uh, that would be the broader broader understanding. The right? broader we, approach. Yeah. We have an ideal of justice, and we say, well, this is what we want the distributive outcome to be. We could just use uh, taxation, tax and transfer, so redistribution in that sense, to achieve yeah. that goal. Right? Um, but but then we, you know, then any entitlement of of uh, particular jurisdictions to particular parts of the tax base. Uh, is subsumed under that under that broader goal, and we can't really talk about tax justice in the sense of well, who's got a right, if any right there is, to tax which part of the which part of the tax base? Um, and and that's that's the way that we think about it. Yeah, in in today's so, terms, right? So tax justice means lots lots of different things, uh, but right mm-hmm. here we're going to talk about. The, uh, the the sort of allocation of taxing rights and how that is just and fair and how that can be governed. Because I guess that's what you you believe an international tax court would look like. Would it be would it govern those relationships? Is that is that how you you imagine? Yeah. It? So let's 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 put in place one more preliminary uh, idea. So the. The consideration that governs tax justice generally today, and we could, you know, go into a discussion of that too, is that uh, is that of an economic nexus, right? So this idea of who's got the right to tax which part of the tax base is informed by well, what's going on in terms of economic activity in this jurisdiction or in that jurisdiction? Right? Yeah, and and the general idea, which again can be uh, critically discussed as well, but the general idea is. Well, if you've got more things going on in your jurisdiction, then you should have a right to tax a bigger part of the tax base. Right? Yeah. So now, these, are the, these uh, are the two things just for the tax for the tax. Base. These are the, the two connectors that the League of Nations double taxation model, double taxation convention model has that provide that nexus are residents and the source. Source. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like they're, they're the economic connectors that. That play that role in the current system, exactly. And in, and the problem in the current system is that uh, there are plenty of loopholes that allow both individual and corporate taxpayers to get around the obligation, the prima facie obligation that they have to pay their tax in whatever jurisdiction it might be. Right. So we've got this broad idea: this set of people should be paying here because that jurisdiction has a right to that part of the tax base. But th- that that connection is undermined by all these loopholes, right? So uh, this is this is one focus of tax justice. Well, if that's what the ideal is, and here's a here's a way to to get around it. How do we fix that? How do we how do we make sure that tax justice is done better? And that's where potentially an international tax court could come in. Um, okay. So- okay. Sorry. So so to pause there. Um, we we have a number of international courts dealing with a variety of specialist subjects, but it seems to me that one of the key questions that we have to ask ourselves um, on a practical level, coming back to the brutally practical of a practitioner here, is what 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 would be the purpose of a tax court? Would it be an international tax court, an, an ITC, if you like, um, it, an ITC? Yeah, would would it be to, uh, to to sort of to adjudicate disputes between states so for example we know at the minute that if you take the OECD model convention 
you've got a mutual agreement procedure. And mostly where that mutual agreement procedure takes you is that if um, an agreement can't be reached as to who gets to tax or who gets to tax what or in what way, then the the poor taxpayer just ends up paying tax in both jurisdictions. So, I mean, would it be to adjudicate, say, state versus state? And you can see with things like the um, Pillar 2 from the BEPS programme that's coming up, that might be a more important jurisdiction because you're looking at, say, um, potential disagreements as to, uh, you know, as to all sorts of things under the Pillar 2 regime. Or would it be a court in which the taxpayer could come against the state or indeed the state could come against the taxpayer? Because I think you've brought up this question of loopholes and you said there are ways that... that, um, taxpayers can sort of wriggle out of their prima facie obligation to pay tax. Which of those or both of those would you see as the role of an international tax court? What's what's your view? So, I mean, my, my first reaction here would be to say that plausibly an international tax court would be part of a, of, of a bigger international tax organization that needs to fulfill two roles. And that is one, to uh, negotiate and achieve agreement on a set of rules. Right. That would be informed by our conception of tax justice. Right? Um, so uh, that would likely differ from the OECD because the OECD, uh, despite its inclusive f- framework, is still rooted in a subset of nations and therefore uh, you know, su- supports existing power relationships. Right? So if you have an, a more inclusive uh, international tax organization with a court attached to it, the first function would be to negotiate and agree on a set of rules. Uh, And the second would then be to enforce those rules. And I guess that's where the international tax court would come in. Now, who has standing, whether it's state versus state or individual taxpayers uh, get involved too? In a way, it depends on the principles that we would be be looking for. Sorry. So before before we get onto what those principles might be and how those, how, how, who, who those drag into sort of having lockers, um, how, how that would affect those having lockers. Uh, you you say the OECD is perhaps not a suitable forum for that, and you'll be delighted to know that in some of the other episodes that we've recorded, there's sort of been a general feeling that the OECD perhaps is not as inclusive as it might otherwise be. It's a and recurring theme. It, it is a recurring theme, Graham. I think it's fair to say. And so, would the could the UN do that, or would would you envisage some sort of independent body that sort of comes up out of out of the dust of those two's tax programs, I suppose, because it seems to me that what, what you're proposing is an entirely new organisation to set international tax. Is, is Have I got that right, or is that an over, oversimplification? Well, so um, it, the main criterion here, here would be a functional requirement, and I don't want to bash the OECD um, uh, because it's not clear that we actually can have something that works better than the OECD. And here's why I say that. Right? So the, I think that the danger whenever we uh, create these international organizations uh, with or without courts attached to them is that they simply reflect the existing power relationships that we already see in the world. Right? Um, so that that's what we see in the OECD, but that's what we also see in the WTO. Uh, if if the UN were to uh, acquire the competence to do something about tax, unfortunately, one would have to predict that that structure would also be 
you know, the 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 the, the powers uh, in in the international arena would try to skew the rules in their favor. So this is this is, I think, a common danger um, in this context that that forms of domination would then be presented in the cloak of justice. We'll say, okay, here we have an international tax organization to make things better, uh, but then biases creep back in. And they would, act, in fact, be reified by something like an international tax court. Right. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. We want we want tax justice, but first we need to get it a, an impartial institution that can actually promote this effectively. The danger is that okay. we end up with a biased institution that that doesn't. So, so I, I have two questions there, and the first one is: I think you just said that thrones of domination would be cloaked in tax justice. Is that right? Well, in uh, no, just because I think in, it's a beautiful in the institutional expression. forms that are supposed to promote tax justice, right? Um, yes, and 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 so the, the the second question I have is: I think you've you've sort of identified that this is one of the problems with any sort of system that we set up. Essentially, I, it, possibly it comes down to humans are fallible, and we have to have systems that are strong enough not to let those that those power relationships come into play um how, how how do you think we solve that i i have no ideas but i am so, a, a tax practitioner so maybe maybe it's a matter of evolution rather than um we can create something perfect today you know things do change over time and they and they have become more or less just over time depending on where we are in the historic cycle so things that we can resist our biases and build a more just system it's not mm -hmm. necessarily going to be perfectly just like the un is more just than the system that we had in 1939 right we move forwards um so it's not i think we we shouldn't try and to use that horrible cliche make the perfect the enemy of the good we if if we can get better let's get better and then and then try and refine it as we move forwards i think what the, um, the, the problem that we would have is what exactly what you said the reification <laughs> Of the system, I agree, I agree with I agree with that, Graham. I'm I'm all for pulling things down and starting over. I, I'm no go go ahead, Harriet. I find myself defending the idea that we have to be careful when we pursue tax justice, which in a way is a little <laughs> is a little strange. But I think this is an important consideration. Right? We we want to be careful that that a push towards tax justice does not, in the end, get diverted and falls short. Think of what's going on at at, at COP right now. Right, so we're here. We are uh, phasing out of fossil fuels at, uh, on the table, but at the very last minute, it gets diverted and, and watered down. So that that is a that is a uh, a danger that one would also face in the institution of interna an international tax organization and an international tax court. That ultimately, those who've always benefited had structural advantages will be the ones who benefit again. Right. So I think that's a general caution. Now, uh, Harriet, to your question, well, how do we get around that? Uh, I don't think there's a general answer. I, I also agree with Graham that well, we have made progress. We have made steps forward. Uh, so one can, you know, one can think of features of the process in which such an institution is is set up that will make it more likely that it's actually a legitimate institution um, and an impartial institution rather than a biased one. But but I think you I think you are right to identify um, a sort of inherent weakness in, and I won't go any further than saying weakness uh, in 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 an OECD led 
process because there's just two tier membership, right? That's just built into the, anything the OECD does because they don't have the idea to do it unless the 36 people that are members decide and then they go and ask the other 100 and however many it is what they think of it. But it's it's there's an agenda setting um uh there's an agenda setting process which must occur within the 36. We spoke to Carlos uh, Proto from Argentina and he was very clear that 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 that, that agenda setting process is 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 actual um but he also said there are some pluses and negatives pluses and minuses with that um because the countries with the greatest capacity to think about mm-hmm. these things are in that 36 and say a very a very underdeveloped country doesn't have the capacity to think to devote that many resources to do, to thinking about that so even if you had a more inclusive process they might not even be able to participate properly or properly is maybe not the right word but to the same level that a more developed country uh, would so you end up even with even when the form is more inclusive the fact that the capacity is lacking means the practical outcome they're not excluded but they're still not involved yeah um, go go ahead harriet what i was going to say was and, and surely that is part of the power imbalance does come from the fact that some jurisdictions are better placed to deal with things than others and so they can sort of steal a march as it were that, that that is that is part of it but notice also that that some of some countries use that capacity to actually uh help uh less developed countries um uh, boost their their fiscal capacity so Norway for instance sends sends tax administrators to developing countries to help them develop certain tools set up certain uh institutions in those countries right um and but about the capacity of of richer countries to contribute that wouldn't necessarily go away in a, in a UN framework, right? So uh, we can, you know, that's worth something in the OECD fr- framework, but it would still be worth something in the UN framework. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what we've come to then is that I think ultimately what your perception of an international tax court is, is that it will be the court that enforces the rules which are designed by, you use, I think you use the, the phrase international tax organization, whatever that tax organization is. And we've talked about uh, positives and negatives of the two the two models that we've got right now. Um, so that is essentially a state-to-state game I, from what I, I feel like that's your conception. And if the taxpayer can be can have standing within that, then that's an add-on. It's not central to it. Yes, and in fact, there there is there's one... Um, now, of course, these, these parallels are never perfect, but I think there's one sense in which we should be wary of uh, giving taxpayers and especially corporate taxpayers too much of a standing. So if you think of uh, what's going on in the context of international investment treaties these days, right, uh, we find ourselves in the situation where corporations are taking uh, states to court uh, because the environmental regulation or the social regulation is changing. Um, and so this is actually undermining the capacity of states to conduct policy, right? Now, this is something that we would not want to happen in the in the tax context, right? The the sovereign to raise taxes under certain constraints because you have to respect the tax sovereignty of other states are the states, right? Uh, so I wouldn't I I don't think it would be 
a a step forward or a sign of progress in the name of justice if uh, corporate taxpayers got standing in an international tax court that allowed them to challenge the tax sovereignty of states. Yes, Harry. Uh, so, so, Peter, I think I think that's a really interesting point because. Again, coming from a from a, a lawyer's a, a practicing lawyer's rather than an academic lawyer's perspective, when I look at what would sort of feed into who has locus before this court, I look at something like say the CJEU, where obviously um, individuals do have well, individuals do have standing, um, but that standing is very much sort of impacted. Firstly, by what is the matter before the court, and secondly, it's sort of it's offset by the fact that as pretty much as many states as they like compile in and and um, sort of make comments on the proceedings. So, I know I, I saw that in the Fisher case when we took that to the CJU. Um, it was a case between three individuals and the UK, but we got comments from Spain, Gibraltar, um, and about five or six other countries. So I, I think I I see that as maybe a safeguard partially against what you're suggesting. And one of the concerns that I would have about dependent on what was what what the forum could adjudicate on, the issue that I would I have with excluding entity or individuals, taxpayers as opposed to states from that forum is that, of course, a, a court is that it is generally the population and much as people may or may not like corporations, what corporations do have a standing and do form part of the body of, 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 of a state, of, of, of the, the subjects of a state, effectively, and they represent interests of people who vote in those states. And so, from my perspective, excluding that entity, individual taxpayer from a court, and again, I say dependent on what, what, it's, what its sort of jurisdiction is, risks um, states not being subject to that sort of democratic challenge, because, of course, we all know that state policy making by states can and does go wrong. And you see that a lot in judicial review challenges in individual jurisdictions, which is wholly about, well, is usually about policy or procedure or something like that. So from, from a practical perspective, I, I, I wonder if the way to address that is to fix the jurisdiction, in, in essence, so that what the court, because I completely see where you're coming from and Again, you, if you look at the um, CJU Apple litigation, which is still going on now, even though it's sort of it's been heard, it's still sort of rumbling on. Uh, you do see that Apple is able to effectively impact what is going on in that court in a very significant way, and that what the court decides will have a very significant impact both in Ireland and in the EU more generally. Um, because it's a state aid case and so is is the way is one way to look at fixing that to fix the jurisdiction so that it really is only disputes between states that can be justitiated in that court so, so can i can i but, can i just can i just jump in there yeah. for a second so the, the mm -hmm. thing for me uh, which i think might be might be partly what harriet's saying but the thing for me with taxpayers 
if a if a treaty or a set of rules effectively creates rights for taxpayers mm -hmm. to be treated in a certain way to expect a certain level of certainty to what then they must have standing they must yeah. have an ability to enforce their rights now whether they have that in their domestic uh courts or whether they have it in, in the international court uh, I, I'm, I'm not really that bothered i think it probably depends on how effective the domestic courts are but they must mm -hmm. have some sort of ultimate appeal if it's the subject of the of the issue is the set of rules and those set of rules create rights then you should be able to go to the fountain of those sets of rules and say, can you tell me what this means? And does it create, do, am I right or are they right? I think yeah. that, that has to be the case. So three three things. The first is I, I think actually Harriet and I don't, don't disagree uh, as much as it might sound here. So I didn't say that we should exclude individuals or corporations to have standing in front of these courts. All, all I'm saying is that we should be wary of, of uh, again, <laughs> reenacting existing power structures that I think give corporations outsized powers, see, for instance, investment treaties and what allows what that allows them to do, compared to what um, a balanced approach would give them in terms of power. So that's that's the first point. So yes, the standing of individuals and corporations in in, in front of this court, but you have to be you have to be careful in how you circum circumscribe that standing and also the, the standing of states in terms of what they can challenge and what they can't challenge, right? The second, and, and I think um, connected point here is a more general one about uh, entitlements to income pre-tax or post-tax, right? So uh, this is this is a, a, a big debate in the, in the literature on, on tax justice. Tax is often perceived as something that jurisdictions, including states, take away from individuals that belongs to these individuals. Right? And, and I think there are convincing arguments to, uh, to support the idea that this is actually a, a wrong-headed idea. So what people have entitlements to is their post-tax income, not their pre-tax income. Right? Uh, so uh, yes, you need to have standing in order to challenge certain rulings or certain uh, ways of taxation, but it... it <laughs> It can be problematic to suggest that you have an entitlement to your pre-tax income. That's precisely the, the point of tax, that we adjust that income in light with the uh, ideal of justice that we've democratically adopted, because we obviously don't all agree on the same ideal of justice, but we've adopted one democratically. And so that one is the one that is supposed to be uh, uh, supposed to be in, uh, enforced in the court. So um, that's... That's yeah. um, that's Murphy and Nagel's position in the myth of ownership. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Which yeah. which Harry and I fundamentally disagree with. <laughs> yeah. So um, we're we're not a receptive audience to that to that argument because yeah. I mean, there Graham are... literally just texted me and said, "Put your hand down." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are there are strong arguments against that position as well. We we would argue, and I think you would agree, there are definitely arguments against that that position that the person's not entitled to their. To, to to anything other than post-tax income. So if we if we put Murphy and Nagel to one side, because I, I don't agree with everything they say in the book either, but I think there is a fundamental idea, and that is that you have an entitlement to the income that the market pays you. Right? And that idea needs to be supported by those who defend it. And I have never seen any legitimate defense of that idea. Right? Why would you have an entitlement to 
an income that you receive by an institution that has absolutely no um or that that is that is that should be and is subject to certain forms of regulation including the adjustments of these in these these incomes right there's, so there's just there's no um there's no plausible justification for the idea that people have an entitlement to what the market pays them um and that that leads us to the idea that taxation serves as a as an adjustment to these incomes depending on the ideal of the society that we have in mind but it it, it can't uh, it is a deviation from the question of the tax court right but but yes. the problem is your argument leads to the state can keep everything for itself and you get nothing there's no that it, it destroys the concept of ownership um and no it doesn't well no. all right but, so it undermines the concept of ownership there has to be some break on the state. I'm not saying it's like I get everything and the state has no right. But we to have we have tons of breaks on the state. We we have a we have a division of power. We have you know uh, again this brings us back to the tax court. We we could have um, uh, we could have the the capacity of individuals to challenge uh, the way that they are taxed because they can show that the the tax revenues are used in an irresponsible manner. So you know I'm I'm not saying that the state should should be able to do whatever it wants, and I and I do acknowledge the danger that bureaucratic structures can develop those those kinds of tendencies. Right? Um, so, so can can I, I? Sorry, can I jump in here? And I'm uh, Peter. I'm absolutely really grateful to you for circling that that little diversion background to the tax court, and I think. <laughs> I'm going to say now that this is something that Graham and I are both fascinated by. I personally do think I have a legitimate argument for the contrary position. Um, and I, I think as a returning guest, Graham and I need to come and hunt you down and take you out for lunch and discuss this over a couple of drinks. Wow, we've got to go to Canada. Um, I'm more than happy to. Oh, I've been trying to get to Canada for so long. <laughs> um, it's but, a whole episode in its own right, isn't it? It's a whole episode. It in its is. Own right. it, it, it's a whole career in its own right, Graham. If yeah. honest. we've we've all written several thousand words, if not more, on this. I think so. We need to, <laughs> we need longer than we've got. But the tax court to bring us back to the tax court. Um, I, I do do how. How do you see? Do you see this as you know? You you suggested this in two thousand fifteen. Was it two thousand fifteen? Catching capital, um, and yeah. and do you think that there's any likelihood? Are we moving towards a tax court? I think uh, it's it's very difficult. I'm not going to make any predictions here, right? I I would say that it would be consistent, given that we have one in the trade context, because a you know, taxes are just the the other side of the same coin as uh, as subsidies, and so if we uh, consider it illegitimate that states pay subsidies to their corporations, and we should also, for reasons of consistency, consider it illegitimate that they pay uh, that they grant uh, tax credits to to their corporations. Right? Yeah. So um, I think this leads to a leads to a broader point that the that the uh, the way in which different areas of international economic policy, trade, investment, tax, potentially monetary policy as well, interact, uh, deserves to be scrutinized from a justice perspective in ways that we're not, or that we haven't been scrutinizing it in the last few decades, the decades of the Washington consensus where 
liberalization was the uh, uh, was the dominating dominating thought, right? Uh, so the dominating thought, if you want to defend the Washington consensus, would be ah, that's going to raise boats for everyone is going to be is going to help everyone. Now I think lots of people rightly have criticized uh, that by pointing out that this is actually empirically not the case. It it benefits some and others are. Uh, uh, get the short end of the stick in that system, right? Um, so it doesn't it doesn't necessarily raise uh, uh, raise all boats, um, but it it also um, means that when we question the the Washington consensus, then we need to look at institutions that um, can embed it in a in a in an ideal of justice that includes concerns of distribution, that includes concerns of uh, climate change. Um, and so tax is just one piece of that puzzle, right? So when, when, when one designs a court like this, one also has to think about, okay, how does that interact with the WTO? How does that interact with international investment and so on, right? Yeah. Um, so that's at least another episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I think it's just, I, I know you didn't want to make a, make a, um, a prediction, but for me, if we have a multilateral agreement like this like the the international tax reform that we're moving into uh globe and pillar one and pillar two and that and mm-hmm. the things that will necessarily i believe follow on from that um then we're building a multilateral structure and a court is pretty much inevitable um because there has to be a place in which the parties to that multilateral system have to be able to contest themselves against each other um and i don't think that uh an organization like the oecd not not i'm not critic not because of the oecd being a, a club but it just is it's not a court it's not the right place to do that conversation um yes harriet uh, so, so it was it was it was one thing but now you've just said that it, it was something else as well so, um, I, I, Peter, you've said you're not willing to make a prediction. I am willing to make a prediction because nobody cares what I say, so nobody will hold it to me. I think that within 10 years, we will have some form of international tax adjudication body that operates as between states. So there won't be any representation for taxpayers necessarily, but that we will get representation as between states, because primarily because there is so much in Pillar 2 that, where there is room for disagreement between states in terms of how the QDMTT is is exercised, whether or not top-up taxes are being paid, um, uh, UTR, all the rest of it, they all rely on people effectively agreeing that they apply and the way in which they apply to a particular group. Yeah, exactly. So I I, th- I think there will be, and as I say, I'm I'm more than willing to stick my neck out because no one cares what I say. The second thing, um, Graham, you were saying. The OECD isn't the right body to um, to have a court within it. And I think that's absolutely right. However, either the OECD or the UN might be a possible body for the negotiation or to, or to manage the negotiation of a treaty that forms a court. Yeah, that, that's what I was saying. I was saying that the OECD as Sorry. it stands is not the right shape. It's not the right shape of organisation to act as an adjudicator. It needs a proper court, and that needs to be established either to one side of the OECD or with everybody getting together. I think we 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 wanted to talk, didn't we, about who would be the right one to to sponsor this? I think, you know, it, uh, for me, it has to be some sort of standalone organization. Well, the court itself has to stand alone. It may be negotiated, like you said, 
but it, it, it shouldn't be an OECD body. It should be the International Tax Court, and that's just what it is. Yeah, and I and I agree with both of you. You know, predictions aside, that the the way that the regulation in international tax is moving these days increases the necessity of such a body, right? Because the the rules are becoming, and in some cases, one might say perhaps not necessarily so. The rules are becoming more complex, and uh, move in certain directions of unitary tax and formulary apportionment, even though the base of that is is sales alone, which one might criticize, right? But that that in itself, the, the move away from arm lengths and pillar one, move from away from arm lengths to unitary tax and formula apportionment, in a way is is progress, right? That's what that's what people have been calling for. The the aspect of that that is maybe not progress is that it's only it's only sales that is included in the uh, in the formula, right? But so to to adjudicate whether those formulae have been respected in particular instances, I agree that you you know you plausibly need someone. Uh, you need a referee, right? Even, even with pillar two, percent of minimum taxes respected, you need a referee. Even with pillar two, yeah, the application of the UTPR. If if I don't, if I'm I don't know France, and I and I refuse to accept that Serbia's QDMTT is a proper QDMTT. Who adjudicates that? Where do we go to argue about that? Um, yeah. Except in a room full of 190 people who've all got their own issues. That 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 doesn't make sense to me as a forum in which to resolve that. Yeah, and, and I mean too- there is there is definite. Sorry, there is definite um, definite scope for fishing boats at dawn, isn't there? Yeah, um, and 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 if we say, oh, well, the OCD Secretariat will make a list of uh, qualifying. Taxes. Well, I, I, I don't want the secretariat to do that. That doesn't feel right. That's giving all all control to the bureaucracy. Well, and it brings us back to our earlier discussion about you know the the inclusivity of 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 uh, the OECD. Um, now, uh, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled on that. Um, to what extent the inclusive framework can remedy that problem or not? I think all three of us are relatively skeptical that it that it can. Um, so then, it, it it would have to be uh, a, a different a different institution, either UN based or completely independent, attached to some yeah. kind of international tax organization. The, the, the only when we say this in all, we said this in almost every episode of this miniseries, the, there is one good thing about the OECD inclusive framework, and that is that that it includes non states, so jurisdictions that are not states, which the UN would not do. Uh, so Gibraltar would not be represented in a UN body. Jersey would not be represented in a, in a UN body. Uh, Guernsey would mm-hmm. not be that. So it's, but they are taxing jurisdictions. So it's important that they're in and representing their devolved power, um, in in that room. Uh, but that's just uh, so that's that's like a catchphrase almost. Now we say that we said it eight times now. Um, so um, just to move on, then we the US. You know they do their own thing. <laughs> They 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 join in, then they drop out. If there was a tax court, would it be entirely moribund if the US just refused to join in? It doesn't. The US doesn't like to bind itself with other people, but you know, things it doesn't control. So, um, is it likely to participate first of all? And if it doesn't, where do you think we would end up? Well, I think so. Two things. One, this leads us back to to the question that I to the issue that I signaled right at the beginning, 
we, you know, what we want to avoid is that the new institution or the institutional reform we pursue recreates existing power structures. So the case that you just mentioned, the U.S. opting out and trying to have it both ways is one instance of that. Right? Uh, so that that raises the question, well, would it still be progress compared to what? Right? May, it, it might not be as good as having an international tax court that the U.S. joins. The question is, is it better than what we have at the moment and for whom? Right? And the answer is probably complicated. There'll be, you know, I... I, this is speculation, but I, I think it's it's probably fair to say that they'll be moving from here to an international tax court that excludes the U.S. There'll be winners and losers. Well, who will be the winners and losers? One would have to carefully look at that and and ask the question, well, is it worth going from here to there without the U.S. and doing this? Um, you know, I think uh, I'm... I'm uh, I don't want to speculate on whether it, it would be worth it or not, but I think those are the kinds of questions that we would need answers to. Uh, if the U.S. is not willing to join, that would suggest that uh, the U.S. as a jurisdiction or and um, U.S. corporations would be would benefit from not participating in this uh, in this arrangement. Uh, well, what about the others? Would they? Um, who who among them, which jurisdictions, which corporations would win or lose from joining a tax court that doesn't include the United States? Uh, I think those are you know those are empirical questions, and they are highly relevant in in deciding whether it's worth it to pursue a project like that. Yeah, I think we should practically assume that the U.S. will struggle to join. Not that it won't join, but that it would. It's its internal political system just makes these things hard, right? Yeah. Um, and we should we should we should build if we are going to build this, we should build it on the assumption that that, that there's a good chance they're not going to be in the room, and then plan as you say based on is it a step forward rather than you know is is life better for I don't know the interaction of Nepal and Saudi Arabia from a tax perspective with it or without it and let's not worry about the US joining they'll join if it if it suits them would you agree Harry? indeed uh, yeah I, I agree entirely and at a time that suits them and the only the only other question that i guess i have is peter in a couple of contexts you've talked about winners and losers um do you envisage a, or can you envisage a situation for a tax court for an international tax system where Everybody wins, even if some people win a bit less than others. Or, or, or is, or does it have to be some people giving something up? Or do we all win, albeit to a lesser or greater extent, if we improve so, the situation? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, if we could get Pareto improvements, right? Any Pareto improvements are what politicians love. Everyone, everyone is better off than before. Let's go for it. Let's do it. Um, now, I think that. Uh, Given two features of our current context, it's even less likely that we're going to get Pareto improvements in this kind of context. One is climate change, right? So uh, it's not that, um, well, the, the, the cake is going to shrink to some extent. It's going to have to shrink to some extent, right? So um, someone is going to have to give up things. That's the second aspect. Um, someone is going to have to give up uh, certain privileges that they have 
Now, from a justice perspective, it only makes sense to ask those who've been unjustly privileged to give up something. This brings us, you know, <laughs> could lead us back to uh, to, to Murphy and Nagel, but we're not going to go there. Um, <laughs> so uh, asking those who've been unjustly privileged to give up some of their unjust privileges from the perspective of justice is, is not a problem. Right? From the perspective of political feasibility, of course it creates obstacles, right? because the uh, the privileged tend to be the ones with more uh, political influence. Look at the example of the United States that we just discussed. So one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get anything done is because there is uh, an elite in the United States that is holding on to its advantages. Do they have just entitlements to these advantages? Well, we maybe to some portion, but likely not to a large part of it. Right? Uh, so how do you how do you get around that? Um, uh, it, it is is a is a tricky question. But to to circle back to the question that you asked, you know, will we be able to do this in in ways that make everyone better off? I don't think so. Okay, so I think essentially. What what you're calling the people who are unjustly privileged from what we've talked about in the last few um, episodes that we've recorded us for this mini series is that the the capital exporting nations or jurisdictions were given a dominant position within the pre two thousand twenty three system twenty two thousand twenty system um, the, the the old League of Nations based model tax convention idea. Um, and that there's that, that there needs to be a rebalancing between those two, uh, th those two sets, importing ex and exporting, and maybe the QDMTT, the 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 pri the privilege is not the right word, the dot the pr superiority of the QDMTT tax in the in the pillar two calculation at least goes a step towards that because um, it means that the that the the local jurisdiction is the one that taxes in in priority to IIR and uh, and and UTPR. So it it sort of that was a shift within the drafting of pillar two when it came out, wasn't it? It was originally QDMTT didn't wasn't in there. Uh, it was added in later as a way to balance it properly. So I think that's definitely a step towards that, and I think that there is definitely a rebalancing going on as. The voice, just the number of voices are increased because if we go back to the League of Nations design, there were just a lot less countries in the world then, um, and a lot of dependent territories, and the and the agenda was even more strongly controlled by the exporting, uh, uh, by the capital exporting nations. So I think what we've what we've arrived at is there is a uh, a strong argument for a an international tax court that we think there probably will be one and it will be state to state, at least in the first instance, maybe expanding to cover taxpayers. If, um, if that, and if it creates, if the, the treaties that underpin it create rights for the taxpayers to enforce rather than just to sort of interfere in, in things that aren't, that aren't relevant to them. So I think, Peter, we're we're about out of time. I think what we've done today here is 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 greatness, considering Harriet's uh, terrible internet problems that she's had. Um, 
So thank you very much for your time. It was really useful to get your perspective on this for us. Harriet, would you like to risk connecting to say thanks? I, I would indeed, Peter. Thank you so much for your perspectives. They're, uh, they're, they're, they come from a completely different sort of perspective, experience and field of knowledge to us. So it's absolutely wonderful to have you come and give us that. Thanks to both of you uh, for having me. I, I I agree with you that that having these discussions from different perspectives is important and and constructive. So uh, I um, I think it's a it's a great thing that you're providing this this forum and uh, and having these conversations with people. Thank you very much. It's good to know that we're doing something right. Um, we will come to Canada and we will discuss Murphy and Nagel in great depth. And we will decide. I, I, I will. I will happily invite you for lunch to discuss Murphy and Nagel wherever in the world. We will. In, we will undoubtedly decide that I'm right because it, that, that's how it works. Okay. We'll see about Peter, that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> thank much you. for your time. Bye. Take care. Bye bye.